Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. My name is Kevin Maynard. I'm the executive director at Quad City Arts in Rock Island, and I'm joined here with Katie. Hello, Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Danielle. Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. Josh. Josh Benson, rocking it from Marion, Illinois. And Brian. Brian Zelmer from KU Presents at Kutztown University. So today's interview is something that I think is very special to all of us uh, in this room because it is the person who brought us all together. So we've all known each other for about a year now, thanks to Christine inviting us to a summit uh, where we all got together and sort of talked about the industry as a focus group and, you know, what's coming next, both in the industry and our lives. Uh, So I would be curious to know, how did you all meet Christine and how did you get your invite to the summit? Well, I think I have the shortest relationship with Christine. I didn't meet Christine until the pandemic actually happened. So I started attending meetings with TYA USA, a, a youth and family presenters affinity group. And some of the agents came and joined that conversation one day. And out of that, I just get this email from Christine Cox saying, hey, I think you're pretty cool. Do you want to have a phone call? And I was like, yeah, sure. What else am I doing? I'm sitting in my house by myself. What was supposed to be a 30 minute conversation turned into two hours of us just chatting and getting to know each other and sharing stories and talking about what we were up to. And um, I just specifically remember like wandering around my house and ending up in my kitchen um, and being like, oh, my, we've just spent two hours on the phone. I should probably let you go. Um, And out of that has come a really great friendship. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. So I started my current job in 2015. And the amazing Max was a part of the season that I was blessed to inherit. And so you know, as I was getting into my role, I was kind of calling all the people that I was going to be presenting and um, introducing myself and talking through some things. And Christine happened to be one of those people. So I was really just lucky. It was supposed to be probably a short call to check in. And, you know, we were like, oh, hey, yeah, we kind of get along. And then it's just like kind of grown from that time of like, so we have this situation. Like, what do you think you guys can do (laughs) given these circumstances? Um, Yeah. And then that that brings us to the future of just like, hey, what about this? (laughs) I met Christine several years ago. I don't remember exactly what year, but at an APAP, that's when I met her. But we we didn't really have a close relationship at that point. It was several years later that we ran into each other at one of those hangs that we've talked about. And that's when I really started getting to know Christine and Max. And fast forward to the pandemic, she would call me out of the blue once in a while and say, hey, what do you think of this idea? Or I had this idea and, and, you know, wanted to bounce it off you. And we would talk for a while. And I remember when she was first thinking about trying to do the magic lessons that Max was Mm -hmm. doing, but with theaters and things, which I think many of us here have already worked with her on that back during the pandemic. And so it was just, you know, we've had a, a really good relationship with her. And then you know, when she invited us to get together and, and introduce us, you know, it was just like a really magical moment, I think, that she saw something that we should be connected. Yeah. For me, it's been eight or nine years, I think. It was Arts Midwest Milwaukee. The prior Arts Midwest, I met Kathleen Toner, who is now married to Michael Mashala, and her and Christine were best friends. We ran into each other in the lobby in this hotel in Milwaukee, and Kathleen was like, Josh, you have to show uh, you have to show Christine the picture of your daughter with the giant bow on her head. 
because she thought it was the funniest thing and the sweetest thing and, and everything else. So it all centered around like a picture of my daughter and we became great friends instantly and it has continued to develop and flourish from there. And then, um, and then I was lucky enough to, to meet all of you at the summit as well and be put together with that. So I met Christine through a conference and mostly through Max, um, just being, you know, going to different showcases and being sort of obsessed with with magic. And I mean, I can't do magic. I know nothing really about it, but just loved it. And Max introduced me to Christine. And so we eventually booked um, The Amazing Max and Christine came to the theater and then we just hit it off really there. Like most of you have gotten phone calls of like, hey, I've got an idea or hey, I want to talk about this or and then, you know, we'll spend two hours talking about our lives and see, you know, and eventually get to the actual business component of that. Um, but I'll I never don't know what forget. you're talking yeah. about. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> never had that happen before. Yeah. Uh, the, the getting to the business component part of yeah, it. Eventually. So but when she invite when she was talking about this like concept of like a summit of like basically like a focus group and her saying you know like talking about this I was like I think it's a great idea when are you talking about doing this and she was like next week <laughs> I was like I'm in let's do this <laughs> which you know obviously brought all of us together and really um, made this happen so which I think is pretty cool so. We had a great conversation with Christine, and I say we because Danielle and Brian joined me on this conversation because it was hard to choose who would get to talk to Christine, and frankly, we all wanted to do it, uh, so we were able to sit down and do that. So I hope you all enjoy our conversation with Christine Cox. I'm Christine Cox, and my company is C-Squared Entertainment, and I'm a producer, an agent, and a manager. Thank you, Christine. Thanks for being here today. I guess let's just kind of start out. How did you get into the industry? Well, I started off as a princess. <laughs> I'm being serious. You I know, still I know. are. I already know the story, so I know you're serious. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I was a dancer who moved to New York City. I actually moved to New York to pursue dancing and to pursue dance education. And I was working at a shoe store, Leduca Shoes, which is the shoes that everybody wears on Broadway. I responded to a Craigslist ad where they were looking for a costume character uh, for a kid's birthday party. I thought, okay, I think I could do that. I did dance parties growing up and I love kids. I wear, you know, all that stuff. So I was actually, I don't even remember, maybe Paddington Bear or Elmo, like not a princess at first. I, I learned how to make balloon animals on the Long Island Railroad. And I met a woman who taught me how to make balloon animals. And she became my business partner to a company called A Princess Visit. So in my early 20s, I was a princess running a princess party company. And I met a magician at one of those parties that I was working. Um, and little did I know that I was going to date this magician, but I did. While we were dating, he, let's just say he didn't run a business. He just had people call him and he would show up and do parties. And I couldn't believe he didn't have contracts. He didn't take deposits. And I can't tell you what happened, but one day I just started answering his emails for him and I suddenly was running his business and my business, and that's how I got started in the industry, was responding to my boyfriend's emails. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. I'm actually going to go back a little bit further because I'm very curious. So before you started doing the, the, the princess uh, visits at the birthday party, you mentioned that you learned how to do, like, balloon animals. So obviously, like, you were interested in performing and interested in kind of that entertainment aspect early on. Where did that start? So I started dancing when I was three or four. 
that led me into teaching dance when I was 16 and working with kids. And then that led me into learning how to make balloon animals like people do. Um, learning how to face paint, learning how to do kids' birthday parties. I'm talking about it like it's an art. I guess it is an art, right? It because is think an about art. it. It yeah. is totally. Yeah, I mean, think about it, right? A kid, their first exposure to art might actually be through their birthday party. Mm -hmm. They might not go to a theater. Maybe they don't have access to a theater. And then a lot of artists, and I know you guys have talked to my husband, the amazing Max. A lot of his work built by doing birthday parties, and that's frankly what happened with me too. You know, I'll say that that is actually an interesting observation about birthdays. I mean, when I was younger, my introduction to the arts, and I didn't realize it, was through plays at my church growing up. And I didn't realize that that was, you know, performance, but it, it was, and eventually that's what hooked me to, to kind of get into the industry. So that's pretty fascinating. It almost makes me want to go to Soapbox for a little bit because we do actually make fun of kids' birthday party magicians and princesses and performers because we just think that they're scary clowns, which they're not. But that is society has painted this picture that if you do birthday parties, you're a scary clown. And for a lot of kids, their birthday party is their first. It's so special, right? They're planning it for a year. You both, two people on here have children and know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You went from answering your boyfriend's emails to having a full-fledged agency. Um, and you don't just put up a website and start doing that. Um, tell us a little bit more about where the nugget of the idea came from and, and how you grew it. So I'd taken a course in college that was all about putting a production. And it was about creating a budget, thinking about marketing, thinking about advertising. So I think I just naturally started putting those aspects into it and then he started doing a show off broadway so i know he shared with you guys and for those who didn't listen to the episode go back and listen to the amazing max max darwin talk about it but um what really happened was i told him i didn't want to be a gypsy for the rest of my life which is ironic because we're nomads now but um he started doing a show because i felt like just doing birthday parties we were never going to make enough money and we needed to elevate our careers and so he asked a theater if he could rent it for the week, for two weeks. It turned into 11 years. And then the agency came into it because we were so successful in creating his off-Broadway show. Everyone else that wanted to advance their careers came to take me out for coffee and ask me for advice. And then luckily, I was business savvy enough to be like, sure, you could hire me on as a consultant. So my first artists on my roster were actually artists that I consulted with that did not have a show. They didn't have mark. They had a show. I take that back. They had a show. Maybe the show needed some tweaking. They didn't have marketing materials. They didn't have a tech writer. They didn't have a grasp or an idea of how they were going to take their show and put it into an actual theater. What type of artists are we talking about? At that point, when I started the agency, it was all family artists. So the show that I had created with Max was a family show. I had also joined the Off-Broadway Alliance, so I was also in New York working with a lot of artists, not necessarily in the family field, but artists that wanted to be Off-Broadway. So the thing about Off-Broadway in New York is any theater under the size of 499 is called Off-Broadway, which most people don't know. So I also was attracting a lot of folks, and so it wasn't just family, but the agency mm -hmm. started as a family gotcha, agency. Gotcha. To start an agency, you obviously need talent to represent, and people take different approaches to that in our industry. What's your approach for 
finding an artist or do you have certain criteria or things that you're looking for and that saying, yes, I, I will represent you. I can represent you. So I see a lot of work in the family world, which I've always been passionate about. Um, I was lucky enough to be on committees. There's a lot of awards out there and there's a lot of committees that you don't even know about. So if you're trying to pinch your pennies and can't always afford, because that's the problem is some folks can't afford to see things. And and that's just the nature of the beast, um, is to join committees. So I, I joined a family nominating committee where I got to see a lot of shows. And the thing is, when you start seeing a lot of shows, you want to see more shows. And not all the shows you see are good. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. But you do have to see shows at all different levels to really understand the scope of what's out there. And then I had to go even further um, we, you, I'm sure you guys are talking a lot about the different conferences and there's booking conferences. So I was lucky enough to be in New York. So I'm seeing shows in New York. I'm lucky enough to travel and go to a lot of booking conferences so you can see a lot of showcases. And then you have to go a step further and there's international festivals happening all over the world. So I've been lucky enough to be able to go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I went to an international children's festival and see things just from a global perspective. I went to an international festival in, in Edinburgh that is called Imaginate, and maybe six out of the seven pieces were just about death. I mean, there was one piece that ended and we all just sat there and we're like, did they die? Like, what just happened? And then the kids in their cute little Scottish accents were just kind of carrying on and dancing their way out of the theater. And we're traumatized because we're not accustomed to seeing that in the States in the same way that they're accustomed. So as a youth and family presenter, there are shows that um, agents pitch to me or that I see that do deal with tougher subjects like grief and loss. And I, I'd be curious to talk to a presenter internationally that is, is booking shows like that. But from, you know, the perspective of balancing a season and needing to try to stay in the black somehow, it would be a huge risk. A lot of people may or may not take on how much of those economic factors versus artistic factors go into how you curate a roster. This is where my producer hat comes in, right? Because when I'm talking to presenters, I'm thinking about what their overall mission is and we have to factor risk in because I know that they're taking a risk and I'm taking the risk if I'm bringing on someone that isn't just a name title that's just going to sell tickets. So I think that when I'm curating the roster, I'm thinking about what is the balance with the amount of risk that I'm willing to take. Something maybe isn't going to sell, but it might take me two to three years to sell it. So I have to have, from an economic standpoint, the balance of the artists that are going to keep my cash flow going, and then the artists that are going to require that two to three year investment that I'm going to need to spend some time really working partnering. We're partnering. You guys are presenters. We're partnering. And do you find that it's easier once you've already done work with a presenter to maybe approach them with something that could be perceived as riskier? Yes, because I usually my lead in is like, you know, I think really big. So can we just think big? So and I even take that in my approach to meeting times. I, I've seen my own agency evolve from just the thrill. And there's nothing wrong 
with an agency having 15 minute meetings. Um, but something that I learned from my mentor, who I think is also on the show, whether he's before or after me, Michael Mashala, is I remember at one point he said, you have to be luxurious with your time. And I remember thinking like, no, you're just having fun and partying. But I can see now years later looking back and it's like, yes, you have to be luxurious with your time because I might have worked with you. We might have had maybe a more transactional conversation, but I see the curiosity that you as the presenter bring. And it's like, hmm, this might be a wild idea. What do you think about this? So I'd be curious, I mean, to really kind of dive into maybe some some nuts and bolts here um, for especially somebody kind of just starting out um, on the presenter or maybe even the agent side. Can we talk about contracts a little bit? Sure. What are different styles of contracts? Like maybe just starting there to sort of like the ones that you're working with or maybe that you know of for some presenters who may be unfamiliar. The basic contract is two to three pages. We have some legal jargon that just says this is what's going to happen and we just all abide by it. I started creating a special projects contract. So normally when you sign an artist, you sign an artist, you decide on what your commission take is going to be. You sign them for a year, you sign them for multiple years, whatever the case might be. If you have to work out some sort of expense thing, if they have to cover some expenses for you, it's pretty generic. Um, I felt like sometimes with my artists, I needed a little more time. We needed some dating time. We needed to kind of figure out, is this really going to work? Maybe they had an idea and it was sort of underdeveloped. So I started with a special projects contract with artists where we would agree upon a monthly fee. And that fee was consulting. Essentially, I'm going to talk to you five hours a month. These are what we're going to be working on. This is going to be a three to six month contract, whatever works. And then after that three to six months, I have first refusal to take you on as an artist and you can be on my roster or maybe we weren't the right fit. But then the time I spent with you, you can take that because we worked together. You can take that and maybe there's a better agent out there. So then there's those agent contracts. There's also this co-production, co-commissioning contract. And this is happening a little bit more. I have an artist. They have a great idea. They have a concept for a show. They don't have disposable income to create it, but they need space and they need some funding. And then the presenter is willing to come in either as a co-producer or a co-commissioner. A co-commissioner is going to just give you some funding towards the piece and Typically, the idea would be that the co-commissioner will then present your work. And then the co-producer might be coming in and they're giving you in-kind um, donations as well. So maybe they're giving you space, but they don't have the funds necessarily, but they want it. They want to be a part of it. So they're willing to give you, the artists, a place to stay, a place to work, and then they become a co-producer. -co so then there's those contracts. And I think a lot of my contracts have been custom and written, and I'm not a lawyer. I've been really fortunate to have a lot of friends in the industry where we're able to share contracts with one another and kind of customize them and have these open dialogues. And there's a lot of red lines and everything's a conversation. Do you usually approach the artist that you want to work with or does it happen both ways or do you, do they typically just come to you and then you look into them and if they interest you, you'll pursue it. I mean, what's your process? It's both. It's not a balance though. I'd say 80% of my artists pursue me. I was at the Palm Springs film, short film festival, and uh, I saw a documentary that was really inspiring, and I signed up for the mailing list. All I did was sign up for the mailing list. I didn't send an email or anything. 
Um, and this person did something I would do, which is called stalk the person that signed up for your mailing list. And she read up about me and she wrote me back. You know, she thanked me for signing up for the mailing list and then told me how she had read about me and the work that I'm doing. And we're in conversations right now about a potential project working together. I had actually fully intended to reach out to this person, but just signing up for the mailing list was kind of all I did at that moment. I think the lesson here to all the viewers listening is that we have these tools available to us. If someone signs up for your mailing list, like put a, an option for people to sign up for your mailing list and know that maybe only five people a year will actually sign up for it. But if those people are doing that, research them. So I've worked with you for the past few years and um, I've, you know, I think that you do really inspiring work with your artists. You know, we've had great collaborations. Do you think that there is an artistic process that has sort of like complemented like the business side of your brain? Like, do you think it's, uh, do you think that you lead in business with like an artful touch? Do you think that that somehow, um, that way of thinking? ballet, Danielle. That way, so yeah, you have to develop a language, you have to develop a technique. Does that, do you feel like that experience growing up affected the way that you're able to think now about business? I said ballet because what I mean by that is being a dancer, every ballet step starts with a plie, it goes into a tendu, into a rond de jambe. There's a step that leads to the next and leads to the next. And I think that I'm really pragmatic in my approach. And the creativity comes from my experience as a dancer. And that that's, it's even like, look back to the artist contract, right? It's like, well, let's be pragmatic about this. Let's start off and, you know, do this three month approach to get to the next step, to get to the next step. And, you know, it's like warming up. So for a, an artist who, who has never worked with an agent or a manager, what would be like some red flags? as to like, this is not the right contract. Like they're asking for too much of a percentage or they're asking for too much of this. What do you think should be the red flag for an artist who's working with an agent? You should not assume that agents, managers, producers are out to get you, but you should understand what you're walking into. So we early in, um, in producing, we got into a really bad contract where we had to essentially sign 50% in perpetuity. We hired a real estate person. That person was not the right lawyer to look at the contract. There are agencies out there that specifically look at entertainment that you could pay them $200 and $200 feels like a lot of money, but it's $200 well spent to have them review the contract. Just make sure, even if you love the person, even if you feel like you trust the person, just to make sure that the contract is in your best interest because the agent man, we're going to send you a contract that's in our best interest. I'm hearing a lot in there too about um, negotiation, the importance of negotiation, because you mentioned how the agent is looking out for the agent. This person's looking for that. It really is something where there's got to be a meeting of the minds or meeting of, of something where it's a balance and, and we get what's fair for everybody. That's really the goal, right? And I don't know how you all work in your organizations, but whenever you know I receive a contract, I review it for the best intentions of, of our organizations with our policy and our procedure. And not to say that we're not also looking out for the artist in some way, but you know we're reviewing it based on what it is that we need to do. Oftentimes, if an artist is protected by an agent or a manager, they're 
completely unaware of this stuff that we as agents, managers, and presenters are oftentimes taking hours out of our life. I mean, the amount of time I think about in the early days just trying to learn about um, certificate of insurances and try to understand why I'm being asked to supply um, a COI, an additional insured COI, they sent an address. And then I started learning about this term waiver of subrogation. And in the state, and this is a good thing to note, that if you're an individual artist like Max, who's a magician, they have what they call clown insurance. And so you can join for a magician um, or a clown or a juggler or a circus performer. You can join these organizations that you can get discounted um, insurance, liability insurance. So you get the insurance and you pay a flat rate. Let's call it somewhere between $200 to $500 a year, depending on how large your company is, whether you're one person or you have multiple people. And then it starts getting dicey because then you get a boilerplate contract, perhaps from a university or a state organization that's like, oh, you have to have a waiver of segregation. So I call them like, well, what is that? And they're like, oh, that just means that Hypothetically, magician is performing on stage. There's water on the floor. Child slips and and busts their face, and now they have head trauma. Well, because we have a waiver of segregation, the waiver of segregation means that there's no dispute whether the artist's insurance covers it or the venue's insurance covers it, and automatically the artist's insurance has to cover so something, so the artist is on stage has nothing to do with the water. The water is from a sippy cup from another family that's there and it's spilled, child slips and falls. Suddenly the amazing Max Insurance has to pay out the insurance claim for the child who has head trauma. And uh, I went head to head with a predominant synagogue in, in New York City saying, this is not fair many hours, many back and forth, and then we finally were able to drop it. But I was fighting on on behalf of the artists, and I think a lot of artists, and I haven't heard nightmare stories, but I can imagine, now I know what a waiver of segregation is, and I say no every single time. And most of the time, there's not water spilled from a sippy cup, and we have an amazing time. We're here for the audience and, you know, People feel engaged and uplifted, but that process of doing the contract is really talking through the worst case scenario so that we are prepared for this, for the best case scenario so that everybody has it. But it is tough because you have to talk about it and you have to understand that if the unthinkable happens, how, how is that going to affect my business? Let's say your show grows, right? So I'm using the example of The Amazing Max. Um, suddenly we have three people working for us. It's no longer just Max. So now we have to get workers' compensation. Now we have to pay unemployment. Now we're told by the state that you can no longer hire people as an independent contractor, but you have to make them an employee. So now suddenly you're paying a performer $100 a show. You now really are paying someone $175 a show because now you're covering their unemployment. And we've had some, we had a really, really hard lesson early on where we lost $20,000. And I tell you, 20000 that's not a small penny because of somebody who had filed for unemployment and we got audited and I had to give them 
three years worth of all of my accounting. And somehow, magically, it felt like, wow, I can't believe we had hired 96 people throughout that time. And then we had to pay back unemployment. So the person I paid $36 to flyer around the hotels in New York City, this is when I was producing in New York, we had to pay unemployment from that person. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, it sounds like you've, you've learned a lot. And this is why I charge people to consult with them because truly, I mean, you know, we're this like we're going through the nitty gritty, but you don't know what you don't know. And I'm happy to sit down with artists. And I've had helped artists set up LLCs, helped artists navigate getting workers comp, getting unemployment, getting liability insurance. It's just a part of what you do because I need my artists to do what they do. Right. I mean, that's really what it all comes down to. So if they're stuck in the weeds dealing with all of this stuff, if we could have prevented all of that and we can set you up, give you a strong foundation, then you as the presenters get the artists at their best. Christine, I have a time machine. Um, a lot of people know this by now, but I want to bring you back on it. We're going to see Miss Christine. Uh, actually, no, we're going to see Princess Christine. And I just want to give you a minute. Is there any advice that you wish she had at that time or just some encouragement even? I came from an artistic background and I, I can't speak for most producers and agents and managers, but I think I would say most of us came from an artistic background and you feel like you have to choose. It's either one or the, the other. And I think what I would tell myself or anybody out there younger listening to is that maybe you're your energy is going in in a different way. I feel like even from a business perspective, what I'm doing is still creative and I'm still following the same ballet approach of, I have to start with the plie to the tendu to the rondage that, that it's, I'm going from one step to the other and then I'm fulfilling myself because I'm dreaming big and building bigger projects. So actually, can I tell myself two things? Yeah, go for it. All right. So the two things I'm going to tell myself is to keep dream dreaming big. I don't think I dreamed that big when I was younger. I think I had more confidence later. So dream big. And then you don't have to choose. Find a way to take all the things that you love and find a way to make them complement each other. For new presenters um, entering the field, obviously you've had an opportunity to work with hundreds of those individuals um, and hundreds of presenters. So what advice would you give somebody new to this industry? I've been a big proponent for mentorship, and I don't think that we prioritize mentorship enough. And this is not just for those coming into the industry. This is for those already in the industry. I think too many people forget about themselves when they were first starting out. And there are mentorship programs out there but I don't think that they're long enough, that they're practical enough, and that they're actually making a big difference. It's your role as you're entering the industry to be pursuing mentors and to be asking questions. And you will be surprised how generous people are. But then it's also the job for those that have been in the industry for a long time to be answering those questions and to not... Look, we all have boundaries and we could do a whole like podcast about respecting people's boundaries. But I think that and actually I'm going to steal something my husband said about kindness. He talked about, um, you know, what do you look for in a presenter? And he said kindness. And I think that the same thing goes, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are kind. Find those people that you're curious about, interested about, and you'll be surprised how much they're willing to share. Christine, 
thank you for your time. Like, thank you for coming and chatting with us. And thank you, honestly, for introducing all of us to one another to make this happen. So thank you for everything. Oh, yeah. No, I am. I'm totally taking credit for this. Oh, as you should. I feel, it is you. I, I <laughs> feel. <laughs> that wasn't like hyperbole. That was, that was literally you put us together. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, a lot of this came from. I mean, I met you guys all at, at sort of different times, but you guys have all been willing and open to taking a text or a phone call. In fact, this happened because I talked you into doing something that didn't have a lot of details and you all just trusted me and went along with it. And I think that that's, you know, a good example for, for those of you listening that there are people to trust and, and that if we trust each other and we come up with big ideas that seem completely crazy and unachievable, we might actually be sitting in a Homewood Suites in Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. You guys, I so enjoyed this conversation with Christine. And I just wanted to kick off by saying I really appreciated what she had to say about you know, like birthday parties and kids entertainment and how that really is a wonderful gateway to the arts for young children in particular and how important those moments and memories really are. I think we do tend to write those types of performers off uh, in our industry and, and maybe not take them seriously. But I thought that was a really wonderful point that she made about it is an access point. It's a gateway and um, made me think a little bit more deeply about what I might do for my son moving forward um, in that in that way. Um, maybe maybe we'll have some sort of musical entertainment at his next birthday party. The interview, I think, really showed how entrepreneurial she is about everything in her life, from, you know, doing the the business, the princess business to, you know, helping elevate Max's business to being a business to everything she's doing now and, and the work that she's even done with us. Um, I just, you know, obviously it's it's said a million times, but we all just love Christine and, and really admire her creative thinking, and, but yet her business mind at the same time. Yeah, I mean, she really embodies her phrase of think big. I mean, all the time she's like, what, like, how do you get this to the next level? Or like, what are other things that you could do with that? That really speaks to her entrepreneurial spirit. Thinking about the timeline of when Christine was kind of embarking on this business um, with Max and starting her own agency, not a lot of women were doing that at the time. And being a woman in the industry and being a friend and colleague of hers, I, re I didn't really know the details of how that all came to be. And it makes me appreciate what she has done even more so. Um, and I think, frankly, it probably took a lot of courage and a lot of moxie to make that happen at that time and to step out on her own and put things into play. So like doing the strategy consulting work with artists and then figuring out how to parlay that into more of an agency format. Um, I just I really appreciated learning more about that. And I think it sets a great example for other young women in particular in the industry that are thinking about doing the same thing. Well, and so what I really wanted to hone in on in Christine's interview is that she talks about people seeing their success and then wanting to talk with her. And she says, yeah, but, you know, it's consulting, that that's labor. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like that's experience that I have and it's valuable. Um, and I do think in a lot of ways, it's very hard to say, yes, my experience is valuable, even though we all know it. And I would tell you in a second that, you know, your experience deserves some amount of value. But sometimes it's hard to really internalize that and like good for her. <laughs> yeah. And sort of recognizing that a lot of that knowledge also came from her struggle. I mean, yeah. having to figure that out on her own and yeah. you know, sometimes making those mistakes. So, I mean, it is I mean it's worth the time and it's worth the money. It's worth well, the investment. And somebody like her too, like it looks easy, right? And it's easy to think like, 
oh, so it, you know, like it must just come naturally to somebody like her. But I, I love hearing her talk about, yeah, like the process and what it took for them to get to that point. And to talk about her bravery, like, like she mentioned in the interview, she'll have like an, a part of an idea, but not fully fleshed out. And yet she's all in if it's something that speaks to her, even, even if she isn't able to see the whole thing yet. I can't imagine working that way because that would terrify me. But thank God that Christine does that because she comes up with the big ideas and, and is able to see those. And like we said, that's how we, yeah, that's yeah. how we all landed here yeah. is we were the first summit group that they, that they had. And in turn, like she was talking to us about it as an idea and made it a real thing during the conversation with us and an immediate real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like two days so, later I had a plane ticket. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> and so like, it, it really is like, not only does she think that way, but she takes action and she takes action quickly. And that's really impressive to, to have the mind to, to think of it and to, to, you know, work through some of those things is impressive. But but having the the boldness to act upon it and act upon it quickly so that you don't lose the idea and you don't lose the momentum is incredibly key to success in an entrepreneurial spirit. I also want to thank Christine for going into such depth regarding all the different types of contracts that she works with. That was like a masterclass in contracting and contracting language. I have been administering con contracts for many years now, and there were things that I had not really thought about or had not seen in a contract that she mentioned during your conversation. So I really appreciated that, and I really hope that that is useful for others out there as well. And we've talked about other, co other contracts being presenter, hiring, and artist, but I like that she also brought in the artist agent kind of contract too. Yeah. And we're not on those kind of contract negotiations, but the idea of bringing on an artist as like a special contract and doing three to six months of consulting and like she called it dating, yeah. which feels right. And to then be able to see at the end, like, is this a good fit or like, maybe, you know, this has been a great opportunity to get to know each other, but like, it's not a good business relationship. And I think that's sounds so smart. Well, and it's a cool approach because they're also walking away with like the next step in their business plan. Right. You know, they, they work together and they're walking away with what they created. And that's really cool. And just her talking about sort of that, that risk and reward of a, of bringing on a new artist that, you know, obviously, you know, you want the person who's going to, you know, do really well and go out there, but sometimes like that's that's gonna be the long haul and like there's there's some risk to that. Well, thank you all for joining in and having a conversation about Christine Cox. Uh, very excited for next week's uh, interview. That is with Michael Mushala, who we've mentioned a couple times in this and who is the other party that brought us together for that summit. So that'll be a, a great conversation to, you know, celebrate our one year anniversary of us meeting together. So thank you all for being here and thank you all for listening. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to there's no business like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hook. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. And I mean, that has, I mean, obviously leads into our entrepreneurial spirit. Entrepreneur. <laughs> say it. Say it. <laughs> Can I just say it?
that really I, that, I don't know that I can actually say it. That <laughs> said, I've never for creative spirit. Uh, <laughs> try a different word. No, you have <laughs> to say that. Now. Uh, what, what did I lead in with that though? I literally just that um, really speaks to her entrepreneurial oh, yeah. spirit. That really speaks to her. Hold entrepreneur on. I was talking. Damn it. That really speaks to her entrepreneurial. <laughs> you said it right. You said it right, and you screwed yourself up. All right, hold on. That really speaks to her entrepreneurial. Entrepreneur, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial. I can't even say it well now. Entrepreneurial. I didn't know I couldn't say that word until this moment. I'm glad you're all here to uh, witness my embarrassment. <laughs> That's the entire. Act. Just you trying to say that word. Hold on, hold on. I, th I think I can do it. Entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial. <laughs> the best thing is you get through it and then you go back. What's sad is you said it right the, the one time and the, the first Just time you cracked up. All right, all right. Yeah. Uh, wait, what's the part of leading it? That right? really speaks. Oh, that really it. speaks. <laughs> Entrepreneurial spirit. Yay. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs>